when I found out that Twitter was breaking the direct links the in the DMs uh, to the Hunter Biden laptop story uh, written by the New York Post, um, that gobs I was gobsmacked. I mean, my mouth was actually hanging open when I found out, oh, you, you cannot actually send this story uh, in your direct messages in Twitter. Uh, and that was a directive from uh, the top there. Um, that, I think, started my um, dark night of the soul, <laughs> where I sort of realized, wait a minute, uh, this technology policy thing, like technology is not necessarily neutral. Uh, and we can talk about that too. It's not, you know, just a tool, uh, as a lot of the libertarians even today w would say. Um, this is something that can be wielded um, in a po very political way. Uh, so so that kind of raised my antenna. Uh, and then the crossing the Rubicon moment for tech policy, I think, in general, and, and everyone who studies it and um, gives policy recommendations was when Parler got axed. Um, so you know, that happened a few days later, I, I go on TV and I basically say, hey, the real story behind Parler was not, you know, Google, it was not Apple, it was AWS, Amazon Web Services, um, turning the lights out. It was them re revoking their cloud hosting infrastructure. And if you can go all the way at that point to the mid tier of the digital stack and control and manipulate the flow of information in that regard, that is wildly problematic. Um, and so I realized that I, I needed to go to a conservative institution um, to be able to um, tell the truth about these things. Um, and so I went to the Heritage Foundation. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And this is the rare episode where both of us are on at the same time. Um, you should some stop of you, traveling so much. Well, I, you should stop spending all the money we raise. Um, <laughs> uh, I have to go find more of it. Um, uh, things have been a little bit crazy these past few weeks. If you haven't been following us on Twitter, which you should, at ammoment.org, um, there have been some big announcements first there was a big profile of us in politico magazine that you can read i think it was called something like the brash young conservative staffing the next administration something like that um it's it's pretty extensive and pretty fair all things considered we highly recommend that you guys check it out a uh, photographer came and took pictures of nick and i looking like dorks in the office it's very entertaining take a look at that and then more importantly and substantively um, i was named the executive director of the edmund burke foundation which puts on national conservatism conference as part of a new strategic partnership between american moment and ebf and so there's a ton of work associated with that we are keeping very busy here we do not slow down and if that wasn't enough there is another big thing which is now we're running our big fellowship for american statecraft program year-round there are applications open right now for a spring fellowship for american statecraft if you want to come to washington and have it paid for for three months for you to get your first job in public policy or on capitol hill um, fill out that form uh, we're going to be closing the application uh, pretty soon here at the end of november maybe first week of december it's really important that you fill it out As asap we are putting people in those slots immediately. We will place you in a 
Senate office, House office, or at a public policy organization and make sure that you can begin your career in earnest here on Capitol Hill. It's December 3rd at 11.59 p.m. Something like that. Yeah. Um, we it's had on today closes. one of the most fun episodes we've had in a long time. We had on Kara Frederick, who's the director of tech policy at the Heritage Foundation. Her research focuses on big tech and emerging technology policy. Prior to joining Heritage, she was a fellow for the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, uh, where she concentrated on high tech, illiberalism, data privacy, and digital surveillance. Before that, she was uh, uh, the creator and helped lead Facebook's Global Security Counterterrorism Analysis Program. She was also team lead for Facebook headquarters regional intelligence team in Menlo Park, California. Before that, she was a senior intelligence analyst for U.S. Naval Special Warfare Command and spent six years as a counterterrorism analyst at the Department of Defense. While at DOD, she deployed, deployed three times to Afghanistan in support of special operations forces, served as a briefer to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations slash low-intensity conflict, and was a liaison to the National Security Agency. She's been on every show and podcast and news publication under the sun. Uh, she's testified before Congress. Uh, she's a Marine Corps brat. She received her Master's of Arts degree in War Studies from King's College London and her Bachelor's degree in Foreign Affairs and History from the University of Virginia, where she played Division One soccer. She surveyed the entire landscape of the big tech fight for us right now in a super knowledgeable and uh, winsome way. It was absolutely fantastic. I can't describe it any better than she can. So we'll go straight to Kara Frederick. Kara, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got where they are today. Uh, you know, people joke that you're a fed, you're deep state, you have a very interesting backstory. Why don't you tell us that story and how you ended up where you are today? <laughs> yeah, so it was a fed, uh, not currently. I'm yeah. like an anti-fed now, I like yeah. to consider myself. Um, yeah, so I... Um, I wanted to be a soccer star. I yeah. never quite made it. Uh, sat a lot of uh, pretty famous benches. Um, so when I played soccer in England uh, in grad school and realized that I had to get a real job because my dad told me I had to, um, I'm like mid-20s at this point. Uh, and uh, I sent a, a cold email based off of a re recommendation to a three-letter agency. Uh, and they got back to me right away um, and recruited me for their counterterrorism division. So I uh, left grad school in London and went right to uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, and there we were considered target developers. Uh, and within... Uh, gosh, six months at least. What's a target uh, developer? Uh, so what you do is you, targets are, are basically terrorists. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was an Al Qaeda analyst by trade. And we our whole job was to find needles in haystacks. And the needles were Al Qaeda operatives. Um, at this point, if they had any sort of what we would call external operations remit, a.k.a. they were targeting the United States uh, and they were members of Al Qaeda or facilitating that. That was who we were targeting. Uh, and we effectively put scrutiny uh, on these people for um, kinetic action by an assault force. So within about six months, I was in Afghanistan uh, developing targets for special operations units, um, rangers, uh, other army guys, and Navy SEALs, and uh, did three deployments to Afghanistan targeting. Uh, and that's where uh, I learned to love technology uh, and learned to use technology. I did two rotations to the National Security Agency, where we had uh, full permissions of NSA analysts, and uh, we used them to conduct our, our targeting activities against Al Qaeda. Um, 
Uh, I also did two rotations to the Pentagon. Um, so I was a briefer to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict, ASD Solik, as many people on the Hill will um, recognize. And it was about that time that I started getting recruited by Naval Special Warfare Development Group. And I separated from the Defense Intelligence Agency and went over uh, and worked as a pure targeter, a senior targeter for Naval Special Warfare Development Group in Virginia Beach. Um, I had worked with a girl who uh, at the Pentagon and she ended up going out to Menlo Park, California and starting a, a team uh, working for something called Global Security Intelligence and Investigations at a little company called Facebook. And she needed people who were were very aware of how terrorists operated digitally, uh, how their social what their social networks looked on, like online um, and who could track these types of individuals. Um, but instead of doing it for the U.S. government, uh, they were starting to do it for these big corporations like Facebook. Uh, so she recruited me. I ended up going out there uh, after a brief stint at Naval Special Warfare Development Group as a permanent Navy civilian. And I helped uh, start and run their counterterrorism analysis program for global security intelligence and investigations. So pretty much what year would that have been? That was in 2016. Okay. So recruited in 2015 and eventually went there in the summer of 2016, Okay. which was a very interesting time. <laughs> uh, and you thought you were going to you know, go after Al Qaeda and then suddenly, you know, deplorables. Came yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it was especially if you guys remember in 2014, it was ISIS. Like yeah. that was the the guys who were propagating those, you know, slick propaganda videos that everyone talked about, um, you know, burning. Jordanian pilots alive in cages, uh, just being absolutely brutal and letting America and the rest of the Western world see it, uh, the entire world see it. Uh, so Facebook, at, at that point, I believe, I wasn't there yet, but they realized they had a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, they realized, you know, cheerleaders for terrorists on the platform, um, terrorist propaganda in general, recruitment efforts. Uh, this was not something that they could countenance. Um, I, I like to tell people that big tech companies care first and foremost about three things. Uh, that's number one, their bottom line. Number two, growth. And number three, preventing PR fires. Yeah. And this kind of thing would have been a massive PR fire for them. Uh, so they were looking into you know some government bureaucracies that had long histories of doing this uh, and recruiting those people, bringing them over uh, to, to the Bay Area, very expensive, and uh, sort of luring us in. Uh, with, with promises of, you know, making the platform hostile to terrorist actors, um, democratizing information on the other side, too. Right. Uh, having communities um, doing this this new cool thing that was really um, in the, the locus of power uh, in the universe. Uh, and they were very effective at doing that. And they, they, they still do have a lot of very smart, very talented people um, drawn from these institutions to, to sort of give what, you know, these big global corporations that still consider themselves scrappy startups, uh, give them a degree of sort of authority and augustness and, and create, you know, the muscle memory that we were used to creating in the government uh, to do these things. 
when did you notice that that things started to turn from i mean was it immediately when you went over there it was like oh there's there's well uh, i guess just walk us through the timeline trump gets elected what happens yeah yeah um i i was actually uh so i was on the west coast um i was still in the office uh at that time and i was sort of giving my parents the play-by-play waking them up on the east coast like this is really gonna happen this is crazy um obviously i was alone um i was sitting in the what we call the the global security operations center there so it was sort of like a 24-hour man thing and um it was uh we were sitting outside of it and i was sort of watching all the tvs that were going on um and i was just like i was like this is amazing this is so great um so i go home i wake up the next day and you go in the building and it was just like a funeral (laughs) It, it people were devastated um you know i heard tales of people going into these little conference rooms just to cry people not being able to come in people having to leave that kind of thing um and there was certainly a pall over the organization i would say um but not just that but but sort of a sort of a understanding that they needed to do something, right? The, these types of people, and I'm not talking about the founders themselves, um, but people more in sort of those mid-tier management, product manager positions, um, HR positions, the the administrators, um, you know, they, 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 I felt as if they were kind of like, okay, so what do we do? Um, it didn't really get, very very bad I I would say um, until 2017 Um, so I left in the summer of 2017 and I would say after that when the Cambridge Analytical scandal broke and the media in general just really started blaming Facebook for Trump's election um, my you know, everyone wanted obviously to to be there and to sort of prevent something like that from happening again. But I don't think that really happened in earnest until I left. Mm-hmm. Um, and having talked to you know people who still work there, uh, they do say there is a schism between those who are hired pre twenty seventeen and those who are hired post twenty seventeen. And I think that it manifests in, in in people like the Facebook whistleblower, right? When Frances Haugen talked about why she did what she did and why she joined Facebook in the first place uh, post. Trump election was for that those election integrity efforts was because she felt like she could redress uh, something that happened, aka a Trump election that Facebook may or may not have propagated in the media rendered their verdict. But it's that kind of employee, I think, that really took it to the next level. Um, but it was more sort of sorrow um, and then uh, the beginning of resolution uh, when I was at least there in 2017. So I wasn't there for the full flowering, I would say, uh, of what came to pass in the, in the ensuing years and to now. Um, but I did sort of see the seeds of that begin. What do you think of Frances Haugen? Um, personally, she's a very nice woman. Um, you know, we, she, we testified together um, and she was very kind to me. Um, I do think while we are on complete polar opposites of the political spectrum, um, I do think her, what she showed the world was very important. Um, the Facebook files published by the Wall Street Journal um, in October of 2022, I believe, um, uh, might have been 2021. But, you know, when the Wall Street Journal published the internal research of Facebook, especially when it came to um, a lot of the harms that are being visited on young people, uh, young women in particular, um, the fact that they know about it and they're doubling down, uh, I think that's a service. I think uh, Americans need to know that these companies are 
extremely cognizant of what they're doing to the next generation of citizens and they keep going uh, and they want to keep going uh, because it's that, you know, growth, bottom line, uh, that kind of thing. And also um, it it aligns with a lot of their ideological proclivities. You know, the, the average person uh, walking through the halls of these Bay Area companies, um, they are supportive of um, uh, the transgender movement. They're supportive of all of the, you know, LGBTQ um, stuff that's proliferating on the platform. And uh, so it doesn't really I don't think it bothers them as much as it bothers people with with our values that this poison is being pumped into the minds of children. Uh, some some do. Some, I would say, on the left are, are very concerned about this and uh, we can make common cause, um, which is a good thing. And especially when it comes to things that are more concrete, like the suicidal ideation uh, that it pushes, you know, six percent of American teenagers um, say that uh, Instagram has uh, they can trace their suicidal thoughts directly to that platform. Um, I think everyone should be concerned about such things. And there are people on the left that are very concerned about that as well. Um, but but Francis and revealing that, uh, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to the good. So tech policy is this interesting thing where it has transitioned from, you know, a department that would exist at a think tank. And, you know, you'd bring in the techie nerds to talk about, uh, you know, the discrete issue to sort of not having any fences around it tech policy undergirds every single policy area there's a tech angle to immigration to foreign policy to culture um to trade to economics everything under the sun um when it comes to um conservative attention to that issue that really began in 2017 when ted cruz started bringing people um, to the senate asking about what was happening when it came to conservative censorship Walk me through your your personal timeline of of how the the big tech fight has evolved since then, um, and and what the what the major seasons in it are, and and describe the season we're in now. That yeah, that's a, a good question. I think it is demonstrative of um, you know how we need to contend with these issues to begin with. Um, so I left Facebook in 2017, um, and then I went to a bipartisan public policy think tank, um, the Center for New American Security. I was there for over three years. It was wonderful. Um, I was a, a technology and national security fellow, and um, COVID happened. Uh, so this is 2020. We're all in remote. Um, my DuPont Circle apartment became BLMville. Uh, so I decamped to um, Virginia Beach, where my fiance was living at the time. And sort of became very online. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no more traipsing around Berlin and Rome, going to these fancy parties, giving fancy talks and, and whatnot. All that ended uh, because of COVID. And so I started to to really um, dig a lot deeper into into my profession um, and pay uh, be one of those people, as uh, P.G. Keenan says, who uh, whose job is to pay attention to things, mm -hmm. to be aware of things. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized uh, when uh, this was a big thing in the election of 2020, when I found out that Twitter was breaking the direct links the in the DMs uh, to the Hunter Biden laptop story uh, written by the New York Post, um, that gobs, I was gobsmacked. I mean, my mouth was actually hanging open when I found out, oh, you, you cannot actually send this story uh, in your direct messages in Twitter. Uh, and that was a directive from uh, the top there. Um, if you, uh, Dorsey or Vijaya, you know, whoever you think um, who actually made that call, uh, Yoel as well had some um, 
uh, interest in that, I believe, as well, Roth. Um, that, I think, started my um, Dark Knight of the Soul, where <laughs> I sort of realized, wait a minute, uh, this technology policy thing, like technology is not necessarily neutral. Uh, and we can talk about that, too. It's not, you know, just a tool, uh, as a lot of the libertarians even today w would say. Um, this is something that can be wielded um, in a po very political way. Uh, so so that kind of raised my antenna. Uh, and then the crossing the Rubicon moment for tech policy, I think, in general, and, and everyone who studies it and um, gives policy recommendations was when Parler got axed. Uh, so you know, that happened a few days later, I, I go on TV and I basically say, hey, the real story behind Parler was not, you know, Google, it was not Apple, it was AWS, Amazon Web Services, um, turning the lights out. It was them re revoking their cloud hosting infrastructure. And if you can go all the way at that point to the mid tier of the digital stack and control and manipulate the flow of information in that regard, that is wildly problematic. Um, and so I realized that I, I needed to go to a conservative institution um, to be able to um, tell the truth about these things. Um, and so I went to the Heritage Foundation, which, um, you know, at the time had sort of a, um, you know, very solid analysis, but um, they, I don't think they had fully wrapped their arms around this problem. Um, and what I wanted to do was study it um, and then expose it, sound the alarm, um, and then hopefully help try to change policy. Um, so we write this massive paper in February 2022 uh, called Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, a roadmap. And it makes a lot of waves. Uh, and it's sort of our our coming out party in terms of, hey, like we're going to take the fight to these guys because the confluence of evidence indicates that they have a political perspective. They are manipulating and controlling the flow of information. They don't trust Americans to, you know, believe their their own eyes and their own ears and to make their own assessments. And we need to fix this. And the government has a role in doing so, uh, because, you know, that is why the government exists. Right. To to, um, you know, not to to help their citizens um, for the security of their citizens and um, to help us self-govern. And this was the exact opposite of self-governance. And it was running amok. It is still running amok. Um, and and I think the utility of, you know, my being here and talking to you guys is to say all of those old libertarian platitudes, you know, the bromides, the private companies are sacrosanct and whatnot. If you can't see what is actually happening right now um, from even just start in 2020 and move to 2023, then your head is in the sand. It's willful at that point. And you need to update your software, as my friend David Boy says, yeah. um, because it is it is a massive issue. As I've said before, it is a five alarm fire. The next generation of citizens is being sacrificed on the altar of these tech companies. Some of them beholden to the Chinese Communist Party, our foremost adversary. So it it needs to be fixed now and the government can help. So there's um, a bunch of different uh, 
buckets of issues that tech policy falls under. There's the uh, censorship issue. There's the security issue. There's privacy. Um, there's uh, the social consequences that it causes. Let's just take each of them piece by piece, starting with uh, the social consequences. You mentioned earlier that um, it's it's very clear that these tech companies know the effect uh, that social media has on especially young people. How do you think about the question of, of how technology uh, interacts with the cultural fabric of the United States and what should the goal of public policy in rectifying that be? Yeah, I think it's absolutely eroding the cultural fabric of the United States. Uh, we we see that with TikTok, and we could sort of table that and 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 talk about the broader landscape of this thing. Um, what I like to say is now we actually have studies that reify a causal relationship between habitual social media use among children, especially at certain periods of their life in adolescence, mostly or pre-adolescence, and um, their uh, their decrease in life satisfaction. Uh, so you have a lot of people saying, oh, correlation does not equal causation and, and <laughs> things like that. But no, we, we have the studies now. Like we have the data uh, that actually says Cambridge University came out and they said there's an inverse relationship between especially females at certain sensitive periods of their adolescent life. Um, they decrease their life satisfaction decreases in relation to the amount of the increased social media use. Um, so that's one thing. And then you have a University of North Carolina study saying that this is rewiring the brains of children. Habitual social media checking behaviors changes the way children as young as 12 years old respond to rewards and punishment socially. So it is rewiring. And these are neuroscientists, by the way, from the University of North Carolina. They're saying, yeah, if your kid uses social media, uh, even as young as 12 years old, their brains are literally being rewired. So that's a backdrop. And then you look at things like TikTok, where we know this is a platform that's beholden to the Chinese Communist Party by virtue of their parent company, ByteDance, which is subject to the laws and policies of the PRC, the People's Republic of China. Um, they have laws like the 2017 National Intelligence Law that effectively makes any private company work in the service of the state. Um, so you have the the TikTok CEO in March of 2023 going up to Congress and saying things like, oh, you know, U.S. user data is not stored in China. Um, the Chinese engineers are not accessing American data. Uh, we, we know that's false. We know from BuzzFeed, RIP, and Forbes <laughs> reporting that this has been happening over and over again, that Chinese engineers have accessed American data, that uh, ByteDance engineers um, and personnel were even using TikTok to try to locate via IP addresses the whereabouts and location of American journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were using it as the targeting app that it is um, in terms of. So so that's right. One thing. Of course, <laughs> most of our journalists are using TikTok. Yeah, of course. Uh. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, and then and then what is what is it? What is this platform pumping? You know, we've seen in the past uh, few weeks uh, the fact that pro Hamas content um, is proliferating on this platform in particular. We've seen in the past few weeks uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, apologists um, and uh, young children trying to rehabilitate his image. Um, it's not a coincidence that this is actually happening on TikTok. Uh, we know that they can manually amplify stories. Um, it's They have a heating button uh, that they do this. This has also uh, come out from, from whistleblowers and, and whatnot. So this is a platform that is capable of and has been actively manipulated by our enemy. Chinese state media accounts um, on TikTok uh, were um, 
insulting conservative candidates in the midterms of 2022 and favoring Democratic candidates. Uh, so they were actually these are malign foreign influence actors meddling in our elections. You know, we heard a lot about that. This is actually happening, yeah. right? This is actually happening. And TikTok is doing it. And yet we're sitting on our hands. Uh, the Biden administration is sitting on their hands. States are moving out, which is great. But a lot of uh, Montana, uh, first state to ban the um, the use of TikTok on personal devices. But it's being tied up in court uh, by industry groups, libertarian groups taking money from the CCP. Massive issue. So there are, I think, two different issues relating to the social fabric question. There's <clears throat> the kinds of content that you allow, whether that be like porn on Twitter or pro Hamas stuff on TikTok, whatever. And then there's like the 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 dopamine question, right? Mm -hmm. The issue of um, you know young people being really addicted to this stuff, where it's actually detrimental uh, uh, to their health, not just mentally, mentally, but I think physically as well. Um, what do you propose uh, or how do you propose conservatives think about that issue? Yeah, I think you think about it in in buckets um, at the Tech Policy Center in the Heritage Foundation. We we start with the first bucket, and this is the impact of social media, TikTok, too. Um, on the next generation of citizens. Um, so, and I've, I've talked about this a lot too. We don't really talk about what this is doing to the souls of our kids. Um, I think that's really critical. Uh, somebody like me who comes from the national security world, hearing something like that is very squishy, but we've all seen the effects right now. Like you, you see, even my daughter, you know, she's barely one years old and when she looks at my phone, she changes. She becomes a different person. She lights up She in, in a bad way, right? And she becomes just monomaniacal uh, about that device. And it takes her a little while to like, we try not to give it to her. Sometimes she grabs it and I'm like, Ugh. but you know, she, it takes her a, a while to come down from that. And, you know, instead of reading like books, things that are enriching, uh, things that actually um, build up your, your moral fabric, um, that that is something that's a warning sign. Um, we know, given what, you know, American teenagers, especially again, uh, I'm a female, so I, I like to I identify with, you know, what the, the younger girls are going through. Um, we had a banned TikTok press conference on the Hill. Uh, we had young girls come and they made signs and they said, TikTok stole my innocence. You know, and mm -hmm. it's things that, that they're seeing, the images that are passing in front of their eyes that has a corrosive effect on these young girls' souls. You know, gender dysphoria, the suicidal ideation, the um, uh, eating disorder content. Uh, a lot of an enterprising journalists, uh, some at the New York Post, have done experiments um, in uh, the UK as well. And they register as 13 or 14-year-old girls, and then they report on what type of content is served to them within minutes. And within five to eight minutes, they've got gender dysphoria, suicidal ideation, eating disorder content. Um, in a Wall Street interview, a teenager described it as a, a, a veritable onslaught of, of this type of content. And yeah. again, it's degrading and eroding the, the souls of our young women, you know, the ones who, you know, we want to preserve this republic going forward. And I think you see the vestiges right now. You see the, oh, yeah, Osama bin Laden was right. Yeah, let's deconstruct Christianity. And I will tell you, the Chinese Communist Party is more than happy to see America destroyed from within by the youth and the poison that they're imbibing from certain platforms. Yeah, I suppose more what I'm uh, what I'm asking is um, what's the how should conservatives think about um, a sort of government solution to this? Is it um, platforms aren't allowed to have this kind of content? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, some people have proposed, you know, not allowing like endless scroll? Uh, how do you think about those sorts of 
uh, regulations? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways. Um, you start at the basics. Uh, so first, you ban TikTok at the federal level. Okay, we'll take care of that. That's good to go. There's so many national security justifications as well um, that feeds into it. Then you look at other social media platforms. Um, we need age verification. And mm. tech companies can do it. They have the programmers. They have the capabilities. There, there are technical ways to do this. They can do it. I bought yeah. a cigar from Michael Knowles, and it asked me to fill out my like. It took my driver's license, and it like knew what age I was. It yeah. was pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing that happens. You know, these are some of the most brilliant minds. Um, and you know, there are there are organizations that you know we we really like putting out um very good um uh roadmaps for this kind of thing oh, but don't you um, understand it's expensive oh my gosh it's or, gonna it's gonna erode my bottom line good good <laughs> and that's the thing like there and this is justice thomas has said as much um he was referring specifically to section 230 and section 230 reform but he he said something to the effect of platforms have been they've gotten all the benefits of in this particular instance that statute but none of the responsibility and mm. that's the thing like they have undertaken none of the responsibility and at this point the verdict is in so take some responsibility. Mm. And frankly, the role of government mm. is in being that stick now mm. because we've given them so many years mm. to try to do this. OK, we will promises mm. or obfuscation when they're sitting in front mm. of um, the senators and house members on the mm. dais, um, technical dolphin speak burr, 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 and try to try to get out of it. But now there's absolutely no excuse um, The technology exists to do this. You have the best <clears throat> programmers at your disposal. You know the effects that it's having on children. It's time to act now it, because they have an act. All right, let's get something in, in there like the Kids Online Safety Act. Uh, let's get something in there like these draft proposals protecting children online, kids online acts. Um, those things have been bandied about there. You know, we are helping work on a lot of those drafts. There's absolutely no excuse at this point for so the government you, not to wield its power to, to help the next generation. When, when you say age verification, just brass tacks like can't access social media before what age? Do you want my personal opinion or do you want my think tank's opinion? Uh, yeah, your personal opinion. <laughs> no, I think I think as as old as possible, as mm -hmm. old as we can go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, speaking as as Kara Frederick, not necessarily our, in mm -hmm. our one voice policy at the Heritage Foundation, we we haven't articulated a um, specific age yet. Um, it is my belief that the longer you can keep kids off social media, the better. Um, and I do not have an issue with the government holding a stick or a carrot in some regard uh, when it comes to these things. Because, again, social media companies have shown that even if they say they care, they don't care. Mm -hmm. And they're actively making platforms to target and maximize engagement and users at a younger and younger level. And that is the problem. When Francis Haugen, again issues these whistleblower docs or you know leaks them and what they're doing is they're creating a, a team to try to draw in preteens nine to eleven year olds how to get them to use the product more creating entire teams to do this creating um products to do this to me that is that's reprehensible we know and on the heels of that internal research that says yeah you know one in three women like they're if they have body image issues they feel worse when they go on these platforms the suicidal ideation thing six percent you know we know but we're gonna make something for younger and younger kids and and we'll call it like i like to make this comparison like a safe injection site right so they're gonna do drugs anyway like little kids are gonna use phones and use social media anyway we'll give them this little safe injection site where they can do it on our platform our little instagram for preteen platform 
Absolutely not. It it is it is all bad uh, for when it comes to children and social media. There's there's no real right answer. So you start with the basics, and you you have an age verification limit. The higher, the better, in my estimation. So moving on to another bucket of broad concerns that undergird the tech issue. Uh, privacy mm. uh you know this this was an issue that uh, sort of precedes the modern big tech fights you even had some you know libertarians that were somewhat good on this back in the day though when it came to government intrusion of mm-hmm. of personal privacy um they had too much money to oppose r- that now right so <laughs> yeah. how, how, how should we be thinking about um the the invasiveness the kind of information that tech companies are able to collect on people the the really arresting um story that that's always um been been really troubling to me is you know amazon's able to tell that women are pregnant before they know um based on the data mining um how do we think about a a new framework for thinking about data privacy in this modern age of the internet yeah so i'll take a page from my old boss's book um mark zuckerberg was always very interested in the technical fixes and the technical solution he thinks like a programmer like an engineer um i think there's a lot of merit to that in this space in particular so i tend to go to the technical solutions here when it comes to privacy Mm -hmm. and that's in privacy preserving technologies privacy enhancing technologies going to be even more important when it comes to AI. Um, When you look at things like um, differential privacy and federated models of machine learning, there are ways to build in privacy into technology by design. We call it generally privacy by design. So having standards, um, NIST actually, the National Institute for Standards and Technology actually has some good frameworks here for privacy enhancing and privacy preserving technologies. So build with privacy in mind, lead in privacy, make your product the most private and secure in terms of in a a technical sense. And you will draw Americans and and I think generally the rest of the world to yourself. So what that would look like in a technical sense is if you have a um, so you have a bunch of data, right? You can anonymize aspects of the data so that you're not really getting personally identifying identifiable information you're actually you you can make inferences uh, you can see sort of generally what these patterns are but you don't necessarily get after the the personal the PII the sensitive data um, of an individual so that you can identify them through there so if you want to do something like Google did it in COVID um, not advocating for this but this is how it sort of works in practice um, if people are sort of like checking in towards exposure and whatnot you, Google wouldn't exactly know who it was or identifying characteristics of about of that specific individual but they would be able to get specific or they would be able to get general a general idea of where those people were were going and and things like that so that is uh avoiding um having your data go back to sort of a central data repository where it can easily be exploited or identify individuals so there are technical ways to do this and if you just design with privacy in mind Mind, that's a great thing. A lot of approaches to machine learning can do this. So, so you start there when it comes to privacy. Apple really sells itself on being the the industry leader in this. Is it true? Are are they actually uh, leaders in privacy? Are they a gold standard? Is there a level beyond them that we should be aiming towards? Oh, I, they're not the gold standard. I mean, again, they'll sell them such as sells uh, yeah. as such. Um, I look at the San Bernardino 2015 terrorist attacks in California. Do you guys remember those? Yeah. Where they refuse to give the FBI uh, any sort of information about the the terrorists, and uh, ended up being cracked later by an 
external actor, but um, they are more than happy to give that information in other instances where, say, the propagator of alleged terrorist incidents or is not a Islamic extremism extremist. Um, so, so I think they're this is a, they're doing it for optics. They're doing it to um, to pretend that that this is something that they're the best at. Obviously, they are so far in bed with China uh, that you can't even think that um, uh, they'll resist attempts uh, for um, authoritarian governments to to provide that information. Tim Cook was just in San Francisco at the dinner. Um, so I, I don't think they're the gold standard when it comes to privacy. Um, even on the technical side? There are some things that they do that are um, good. But they tend to be convenient for Apple's bottom line, uh, such as sort of the walled garden, like Steve Jobs's whole idea of, you know, all of their products are sort of sealed away. Um, the side loading thing, uh, which I, I know um, a lot of our friends are, are can talk uh, in more detail about. But no, I, I think I think there's there are better ways to do it um ways that aren't beholden to the chinese communist party um and ways that aren't necessarily beholden to a, a leftist framework uh when it comes to you know foreign islamist terrorists visiting their attacks on the american people are there any like libertarians uh whether it's groups or members that are particularly good on like the privacy issue now um the electronic frontier foundation has been pretty good um they um there are some things that you know we would disagree with um so hit or miss but they t they tend to be uh, i would say historically pretty good and now decent um you know here's here's my bugaboo with the libertarian organizations now um their moment to shine was covid their they had every opening to roar and be as ferocious as they are against real conservative organizations like us uh, when it comes to the government actually, you know, putting the boot on the neck of Americans, be it the COVID vaccine, be it, you know, some of these, um, uh, you know, sort of technical COVID measures uh, that a lot of universities were, were saying that they were going to stand up. Instead, they just like edited the dictionary definition of what being a good libertarian is. And it's like, except when yes. the government says that there's yeah, a flu. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They they folded like cheap suits, you know, more than than any than most groups, you know, that I was aware of. And, you know, where were they? Where were they when this happened? Maybe some people gave anemic protests and whatnot, but they have come out more vociferously uh, against an organization like like mine and, and me in particular. Personal invectives have flown um, and it because of we are trying to actually hold big tech accountable, I have never seen them get as excited as they have um, when they are, you know, sitting on a dais next to me with the, from the Heritage Foundation when I'm going after big tech. Um, that really lights a fire under them, uh, not the COVID vaccine mandates, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my uh, appreciation for the libertarian bent. I would have called myself a libertarian five years ago, by the way. My appreciation for the libertarian bent receded considerably when they lacked the courage to be fighters for the American people and self-governance during the COVID, vac the COVID vaccine and the pandemic in general. 
Uh, that's very fair. Um, the next bucket of of issues is is security. We've mentioned the the TikTok conversation. I do want to talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but cybersecurity, um, especially uh, you know uh, d- domestically, but also internationally, is is an issue that's growing. It's it's clearly the sort of uh, a new dimension where warfare will occur. Um, what do you think uh, the American government needs to do in order to to level up how seriously it takes a security question, um, uh, both on the offensive side and on the defensive side? Yeah, that's a good question, but I, I do want to preface it um, by discussing you know something that is talked about a lot in our circles and that is the fact that there there are legitimate security concerns um not just cybersecurity but security concerns terrorist concerns drug trafficking human trafficking uh immigration coyote advertisement concerns um for these platforms there there are truly legitimate reasons for types of surveillance to exist uh, for these tools to be created and used. I helped create some when I was at Facebook to combat foreign Islamist extremism. But we've unfortunately seen a trend in the past few years of turning those tools inward on, frankly, American conservatives. Um, You know, this inflation of the definition of domestic extremism to pretty much just encompass dissident narratives, um, narratives that go against the um, uh, line that's being parroted by the Democratic Party and Democrats today um, and people on the left. So I think that needs to be said first and foremost. There are legitimate reasons to have these security tools and whatnot, but also it's a big, big problem when you have entire essays written um, about counterterrorism efforts on these platforms that say, yes, we deliberately intended to redress what we see as a bias toward Islamist extremism at the expense of domestic extremism, which we all know mm-hmm. is interpreted as yeah. conservative well, thought. Well, well, like one us. of which is about, you know, beheading toddlers. Uh, the other is about, you know, voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And you look and, and this is now like ingrained in the fabric of our institutions that were ostensibly, you know, um, force multipliers in this fight. So like the DHS, February 7th, counterterrorism advisory bulletin that said, um any you know the the people that are posting covid quote unquote misinformation disinformation malinformation that is tantamount to terrorist activity these actors are creating a, an atmosphere that can lead to domestic terror attacks when we know that people on tiktok are actually saying no terrorism is great and that's that's good and fine heck the biden administration is considering today this very day getting a its own tiktok account um so so that is, I think, very, very important. Uh, a cognition of that is very important for most individuals to, to be aware of when we talk about security and cybersecurity. Um, cybersecurity, you know, we know, given you know ransomware and all that, has become a bigger and bigger problem. Um, I am an advocate of um, the 2017 Cybersecurity uh, Command Vision. Uh, which Cyber Command Vision, which basically said tactical friction is a good thing. Um, and that means there's more of an offensive remit uh, against foreign actors. And I, I have to always very 
be very, very careful to say <laughs> malign foreign actors influence yeah. because otherwise it's okay. Who are who are the real terrorists? Who does the Biden administration think are real terrorists? Um, TLM goers in the Richmond diocese <laughs> and uh, parents at school board meetings, yeah. things like that. Um, so when legitimate terrorism exists, people who who actually do want to visit harm on American citizens, especially from the outside, um, this was my bag again in the government. Um, that is a thing. Then we we take the fight to those actors. Um, and there have been some really interesting operations. Um, that have been publicized uh, attempting to do that. We are not typically very good at this kind of thing, especially in the information environment. Um, so I would definitely urge caution with, you know, a bureaucrat is listening to this and they're like, oh, I'm going to start my own propaganda campaign uh, against, <laughs> um, you know, Hamas, that kind of thing. Um, but but I do think tactical friction is a, a good policy recommendation when it comes to cybersecurity mm-hmm. um, and those issues. But but again, you if you build these technologies and these products, privacy by design, then you are saving yourself a world of hurt, uh, a lot of retroactive policies that are being creative. You're saving yourself a world of hurt. And you're frankly protecting the dissidents among us um, in, in a lot of ways. So I think there's a balance to be had uh, between sort of those two considerations and finding it is you know part of our job. Uh, and we have to communicate that to people on the Hill. In hostile foreign powers, uh, China, North Korea, Iran, and several other countries, um, there uh, is a sense, at least that's been communicated to me, that the most talented programmers and hackers in those countries end up being part of the offensive cybersecurity capabilities of those countries' militaries. Um, And and in our country, the the most talented programmers go on to to big tech companies. And so um, do we have a sort of systematic disadvantage when it comes to the the talent of of our, you know, cyber uh, military, uh, to use a completely made up colloquial term, um, mm-hmm. when it comes to, um, you know, combating these these foreign threats? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and there have been a lot of efforts, especially starting in like 2017, moving forward to, to try to fix that. Um, jury's still out uh, on whether or not those have, have succeeded. Uh, but I've always been an advocate for creating some sort of on-ramp, off-ramp, um, in the words of uh, Nate Fick, who, who runs um, a big cyber portfolio in the government right now, former Marine, um, to allow people to sort of get a taste of the government, get a taste of the private sector, and then go back in uh, to the government. Obviously, things have been a little different with the in the past few years and, um, you know, working for the government and the way that it treats conservatives, um, but generally... I think it's a good thing for people to get experience in in both sectors, public, public and private, if they can. Um, but the private sector, I think, obviously, is going to be very alluring, uh, given the the resources that they have. Uh, we saw, in fact, uh, pretty much when when I was there, um, and then going forward, we saw a a drastic improvement. I think in the capabilities of our you know our threat intel analysts and in the private sector, vice the public sector, um, because you know they have a lot of the regional expertise, the the language capabilities, uh, the fact that you can create these internal tools soup to nuts in like a week is insane in the private sector. That never happened in the government. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you, you, I mean you want something done in the government it's the the adages are all correct you know everyone's so sclerotic nobody really cares because they're never really held accountable they're just punching a clock um i you know i like to call it a welfare system for mediocrities uh, (laughs) because they're not held to account um and it's funny when i was getting out i got out as a gs13 pretty high step level um within that 
uh, category. And the woman who was checking me out, she was like, what are you doing? Like, you're crazy. You know, you're, you're in your, um, I think at the time I was, I probably just turned 30. And she was like, you're insane. Like you, you'll be making like bank. I was already making a decent amount of money and nobody, um, nobody asks too much of you and i was like that's the problem <laughs> like any hard charger any high performer like you it's a tenure based system the the person who was sitting next to me in the pentagon he would clock in clock out like read his newspaper do like just that's because nobody was going to hold him and no one was going to fire him. And that is a massive problem. I don't need to tell you guys about um, that issue, um, but it, it's it's very real. Um, and people are, are there's the the 1% of individuals who are the hard chargers doing most of the work. And then the rest are just kind of like hanging out, you know, collecting a paycheck, um, banking the years um, so they could get their next uh, step boost. So big problem. Um, and then when you go to a private organization, you know, I, I go to Facebook within six months, I'm getting five figure bonuses because of performance. Like that's insane. That's and in the government, it's still it wouldn't have happened. And I was, you know, doing everybody else's work, the geriatric, you know, next to me is work because again like i i wanted to do it and that's how the system operates and that's not tenable and that that is why we're having the problems that we're having hopefully he's not listening to this show <laughs> <laughs> he's a good dude he's a good he, know, he knows that's the thing he knows <laughs> like so the final bucket that that i think is worth paying specific attention to is the issue of political censorship and um you know i have right-wing friends that, that sometimes get frustrated at the attention um, that is paid to these other buckets of issues mm -hmm. like you know, social consequences, privacy, security, uh, because they feel like the reason that there is right wing energy and attention on this issue is political censorship. And as many resources need to be devoted to focusing on that problem as possible. And I, and I basically agree with them. I think that we can do lots of things at the same time. Um, but political censorship is a great way to make it so that we never get to do any of the stuff we want to do on policy on every other issue because we can never win elections. Um, where does the landscape of political censorship uh, through technology stand today? How is it different than it was five or six years ago and what needs to be done this is the point at which someone says section 230 and i need to shoot myself in the head but like i yeah, guess we I might can't. have to talk about that <laughs> well, yeah, we'll we'll try to skip the surface of that a little bit um but i will quote your board member rachel bovard um yeah. and our new heritage visiting fellow mark meter um and it, it's worth saying that a lot of these censorship issues are downstream of the consolidation of power that these big tech companies have been able to amass with their anti-competitive behaviors and practices. So I think that does need to be said because you can't understand conservative censorship without understanding how they're able to do this. Um, and we can get into sort of the antitrust stuff if you want later. Um, you should actually, you, I think you've had Mark Meter on. Of yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Literally uh, the so. second it was legal for me to do so <laughs> as soon as he left the Lee office. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, he's, uh, he's got the blue bell uh, yeah, next to his name now. So that's, that's a good get. Um, so he can, he, he explained those issues very well. Um, and the, the censorship state of affairs right now is, you look at something like the NC State study, uh, which uh, uh, they looked at Gmail um, and spam, like what uh, in the 2022 midterms, like what is going to um, uh, your spam folders of vice, what is actually sitting in your inbox um, when these candidate emails are sent. And they found that most conservative candidate emails right to the spam folders, through the spam filter, and most Democrat candidate emails went into people's inboxes. The Google is, is contesting this. Uh, the researchers had a big spotlight on them afterwards, and were like, "Oh, I don't know, I don't know, if we did this, but it, 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 their research holds true." You know, th this is happening at that level, um, and 
Email delivery services, I think, are just a, a small tip of the iceberg. I alluded to this early on, but when you look at the entire digital stack, so you have your application layer sitting at the top, you have cloud hosting services sitting at the middle, and then the foundation layers of the stack are like uh, internet service providers and whatnot. Now, big tech companies can control every layer of the digital stack. So it's not just censorship and content moderation and the Section 230 issues. It's actually the flow of information. Uh, it can be cut off. Uh, it can be lights out for entire companies um, if you know certain mid-tier layers of the stack are targeted by uh, companies that wield them. Or um, you know you can get to the, the lower levels. And, and that's when we're, we can talk about payment processing. Uh, we've seen, especially in Canada, right? Like actual people could not withdraw money uh, because money's digital and because they had the wrong political opinions according to the Trudeau government. Um, fundraising platforms, like as life takes on more and more digital characteristics, you will be segmented. You will be cut off. You will be unable to perform the regular duties of life and be a citizen of the United States now because everything is so digital and because of censorship. That is what I think people need to understand. It's not just a content issue. It's not just a free speech issue. It's a doing life issue. And tech companies, because Th this is so transformational because this is so different and so new. A lot of people, especially libertarians, will say that's not true. The printing press, and rah, rah, rah. No, <laughs> like we, this is this is a, a this is the fight of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people are starting to realize that as life, as moving among people in general becomes increasingly digitized. So. You want to be in in the segment of the population that gets to do things, or do you want to be in you know the gulag, uh, not just the digital one? And tech companies are able to make you have to have a choice at this point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so it's it's worth spending some specific time. You know, we went through all of these different buckets of technological issues and and how they intersect with public policy. All of this just had gasoline uh, poured on it with what felt like the all of a sudden emergence of AI. Now, now you and I both know that that's not quite as simple as being all of a sudden, but it does have renewed attention and centrality in the imagination of everyday Americans. How should conservatives be thinking about AI? This is really um, a, a moment very poorly suited to like bow tie nerds who don't understand <laughs> how technology works. And so someone who actually has uh, a technical mind, please, please tell us how we should think about all this. Yeah. So uh, back in 2018, I was a researcher on the Center for New American Security's AI task force, and we brought a lot of the, you know, leading minds on this together. Um, uh, Carnegie Mellon, Andrew Moore. Uh, we had OpenAI representatives there. Uh, we had DeepMind co-founder there uh, as well. So um, we've been thinking about this for for a few years now. And when I think of how conservatives should start to contend with this problem, I think there's one thing that is often missed, uh, and it's very aligned with our views at the Heritage Foundation on big tech. And a lot of the um, monopolistic practices of these big tech companies, regulatory capture, et cetera, um, that is applicable to AI as well. Mm -hmm. So AI, you get more accurate outputs from your machine if you say throw a bunch of gpus at the problem if you have a lot of compute power if you have a high volume and variety of data um that can you can train machines on and you can refine your algorithms and you just get i'll say better ai for sort of the the um you know broad strokes version of this and 
a lot of those advantages are naturally accruing to these big tech companies. Mm-hmm. Google's been, you know, pilfering our data for decades now, um, that kind of thing. So they are looking to cement these advantages um, by these, you know, overly strict sort of licensing certification, that kind of thing. Guardrails are great. I've been an advocate for guardrails for a very long time. However, when these companies clearly have a dog in the fight, and that is um, preventing the open source community and preventing open sourcing a lot of these foundation models. I, I think conservatives need to think about that very seriously. And frankly, this is something where the libertarians and we, you know, they can, they should maybe get on board to this too, because competition, uh, Rachel says a lot, like a genuine free market is not what these big tech companies are doing with their anti-competitive practices. And there, we have a litany of those to, to talk about, but they're, effectively trying to do the same thing with AI. Um, so conservatives should first and foremost be on guard against that. Um, conservatives need to think about China. Um, when uh, Biden says we need to cooperate with some of our competitors on AI, uh, does China ever want to cooperate us um, to our own benefit? No, they, they always want to um, pull the wool over our eyes uh, for their own benefit. So we should go in with our eyes wide open. They've been very active in a lot of these international standards bodies uh, where AI-driven technologies like facial recognition, where how that technology is used throughout the world is determined. Mm -hmm. So we should get involved and active in those bodies as well and have a affirmative, alternative, U.S.-based version of AI-driven technology use uh, throughout the globe. So I think those are three things conservatives can think of sort of right off the bat. Um, I'm a big, I know this is very contentious, uh, Sam will will argue with me, but um, in terms of open um, open sourcing a lot of the foundation models, I still think the best products come from these communities. And if you have an industry standard that can be worked on by all of these people who are, you know, identifying potential malicious uses and just building better products in general, certain foundation models should be open sourced. Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest uh, risks for like misuse or how it could affect the American consumer. Yeah. Well, you've seen the deep fakes, synthetic media. uh, So that's very popular. It's sexy. It kind of plays well right now. Um, That's a big thing. What I think is really interesting to combine your previous question about cybersecurity, there was a situation after Soleimani was killed uh, where Trump did a good thing. Um, And a Kuwait, a, a Kuwaiti, an official Kuwaiti account was hacked and they um, it was basically saying that U.S. troops were pulling out of the region and it caused people to be like, oh, no, like we're not going to have our security, that kind of thing. I'm very concerned about the combination of cybersecurity, so hard hacking operations and then using some sort of uh, AI generated um a piece of information or, or narrative to uh, start to cause people to panic. So it would look like, remember the Pentagon explosion? There was yeah. generative AI, that kind of thing. So hacking an official account. The stock market and dropped a couple of bips. That, that happened, yeah. yeah, years ago. Um, same thing, yeah. Um, so it's that kind of, that combination, mm-hmm. I think, of those sort of, um, that operation and then using generative AI, that's a big thing. Obviously, the the whole um, value proposition of artificial intelligence right now in the information environment is that tailored aspect. So they can be very tailored vectors of propaganda that bespoke propaganda because your digital profile is much more easy to identify using a lot of these AI tools. And then you can get served uh, perfectly tailored propaganda to you that can shape your behavior uh, at scale. So so not just like you as an individual, but this is happening again and again and again. 
There are all sorts of ways to make um, spear phishing attacks much more efficient um, through AI as well. So it's like uh, a phishing attack. Mm -hmm. Um, So based off of social engineering, so you're on Mm -hmm. your computer and everyone has probably been phished at some point, but you can automate that with AI and you can actually tailor Mm -hmm. these attacks given digital profiles of individuals. That is a big thing. But AI can also, you know, some of the um, synthetic media detection software, that kind of thing. So it's sort of like a cat and mouse game with Mm -hmm. AI at the center, too. Uh, But I think that synthetic media and the focused tailored propaganda that can shape behavior, especially during an election season, that's going to be the thing that that rises to the forefront Mm -hmm. of people's consciousnesses when it comes to AI. One element of the AI conversation that that is sort of central to to how I think about it and how American Moment thinks about it is that um, technological advancement is good. And Mm -hmm. It is precisely through the process of building regulatory moats around the incumbents like the Biden administration is doing right now that the the best um, or, or the, the 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 best version of the benefits of technological advancement can get curtailed. Walk me through how you're thinking about that. Like what's the what are the good things that could emerge from um, AI technological progress that that won't if uh, we allow the sort of left wing approach to regulation to reign supreme? Yeah, I think it comes back to the the open sourcing, the foundation models. Too. Mm-hmm. So what open AI did that was really interesting. So in 2019, they released GBT two. Um, and they released elements of the model to the open source community. They open sourced it, um, as we say with a verb. And they allowed people to potentially identify some some of those malicious uses that people who don't want to open source these technologies warn about. Um, so that was a good thing. We, we recommended actually at CNAS that they do that. Um, and so we we thought, OK, you let the community work on this and then you identify a lot of the problems at the outset that, again, you don't have to go, um, you know, make new laws to contend with this uh, in the uh, in the future. So something like that is a really good thing. Um, the the again, sort of the. I think there are ways to create safeguards and you can do that in ways through the open source community. Yes. You know, you have a small percentage of people who can take these uh, applications and do very bad things with them in the open source community. I understand that. I acknowledge that. Uh, But I think in this case, the good will outweigh the bad. Um, So so that's kind of comes back to how we're we're thinking about it. Um, uh, The you know, models of machine learning approaches to machine learning that have privacy built in, like federated models of machine learning we talked about before, where you're sort of protecting that individual um, data of the that's personally identifiable. I think that's one way of going about it. If you want to push these companies to do that at the outset, that that's also a good thing as well. Um, what what was the the last thing that you asked? Oh, just like what, what, where you think the upside is. Yeah, you know, what, yeah. Okay. What should conservatives be excited for? for oh, AI? great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is actually, you know, somebody who every time I walked into my office at the Pentagon, they would say, oh, here's doom and gloom. You know, <laughs> like an Intel analyst. I'm yeah. like, okay, here are the ridgeline threats and risks. So my mind naturally goes that way. Um, but when I'm thinking about the promise of these technologies, I think a lot of that exists in a combination of sort of using what humans are good at and then using what machines are good at. Mm -hmm. So a really good, clear, I think, example of this is a computer vision algorithm that Google built on a contract with the Pentagon, Project Maven. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it would do is it would eliminate, which is, this is a good thing in this instance, the 
analytical rigor, which is not high, necessary for full motion video analysts to identify things in the field like um, here's a motorcycle, here's a truck, here's a tree, here's a rock. So the way that it looked when I was in the field is you had a whole row of full motion video analysts, like people who had their meals delivered to them. And, you know, they were just staring at screens, trying to label and identify what our specific footage from the drone um, would w- should be characterized at. If a computer can do that, computers are better at doing that kind of thing than human beings are. Um, they are they are built for that sort of thing to to parse through that sort of, you know, big data and provided the computer vision algorithms are good, uh, then that eliminates the need for these full motion video analysts to just sit there in a mind numbing way, eating their lunch out of their, um, you know, their their tins and and say, here's a rock, here's a tree, that kind of thing. Instead, you can reserve that analytical rigor for something uh, that requires more all source uh, analysis, something like that. So so that's the promise, you know, because what are what are machines good at that better than humans? They're they're good at parsing through lots of data, again, that high volume and variety of data and identifying patterns, detecting anomalies. Um, so using machines to do what I say machines do best and then reserving human beings to allow uh, humans do to do what they do best, I think that is part of the promise. And it's that combination of the, the human intelligence and machine intelligence that can work um, to, to f- frankly, fight our wars better, um, which I do think is still necessary in some instances. Um, we've gone a little overboard, as you guys know, uh, I think that. Um, but um you know in the commercial space too it's sort of the 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 same thing you know if you have uh, a ton of data uh, you need to analyze you need an anomaly detected you need a pattern to be recognized machines are really really good at that and then human beings can do the more sophisticated brain work um so it's in the the combination i think that offers the most promise it's good optimism now i'm going to ask you to do doom and gloom again um Perfect. When someone has deep subject area expertise that that has kind of arrived to new political salience, um, I always like to to ask them this question, which is, what is the thing that you're terrified about that no one has on their radar right now that in 10 years, everyone's going to be Johnny come lately to that issue, but is just now, you know, dancing at the edge of your imagination and and you're worried, um, you know, we're not paying enough prophylactic attention to. So there I think there are two things, one very specific and one more general I'll start, I'll start with the general thing first. Um, I'm worried about just the flattening of information. If you look at our children, it's the next generation of citizens, not just because I'm a new mom yeah. or anything like that, <laughs> but I think about this now much yeah. differently than I did when I, when I didn't have a daughter. And you look at things like large language models, GPT-4 and, and, and whatnot, the information that, that people are getting is so truncated that you know we are not able to be the critical thinkers that we're supposed to be and filtering all the information from ourselves and then coming up and refining our own arguments because a lot of it's being made for us. You know, all of the the trust and safety layer, as um, David Sachs talks about, that is being coded and programmed by, you know, the people in Silicon Valley who don't necessarily think like the three of us here. And it is filtering out um, and, you know, filtering in information that this large language model um, is, is, is processing. And that that is the thing that our kids see. So it's sort of the the it's not just at this point it's not just the control of the flow of information but it is the control of the information itself that's absolutely critical for the next generation um and it's going to be um they're going to be severely disadvantaged if we want 
I think America to exist in the way that we, well, I'm a lot older than you guys, but the way that I grew up in, which I think in the end, I tell my husband this all the time, that America's gone. That America's gone. But if we want some remnants, maybe how you guys grew up, then we have to get our hands around the AI thing very quickly. Uh, so that's the general thing. The specific thing, and I wrote about this in our February 2022 paper, is Apple um, was toying with the idea of basically surveilling your phone at the device level and they were doing it under the auspices of csam child sexual abuse material and preventing you know csam so what their proposal said was that they could go through say your eye your photos your eye photos i think that's what they're just called on apple um and and make a determination like oh is this you know nudity and that kind of thing and at device level surveil your phone that is a massive issue that is like okay oh you don't want somebody to you know extrapolating out you don't want someone to to read this specific thing okay you're you're not that that can't even be downloaded on your phone at all so that to me too is okay if you have uh things happening at device level and i i write about this a lot more in the paper uh, if you guys want to read it, February 2022, Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, that's an issue. And that's part of the reason why we named it deliberately totalitarianism, right? Mm -hmm. The politicization of everything. Mm -hmm. If this phone in your pocket uh, is a political weapon uh, wielded by the Chinese Communist Party or uh, Apple or Google or um, Facebook, then we don't, we're not allowed to govern ourselves. We don't have an America. We don't have a country at that point. Kara. This was absolutely awesome. How can people keep up with everything that you're writing, saying, thinking, talking about? Uh, where can they find all of it? Yeah, anything, um, heritage.org, um, director of tech policy there. So we have a uh, a tech page. Um, I'm myself, uh, Kara A. Frederick on Twitter, like Frederick the Great. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I do, I do the Instagram thing too. Sorry, X, I mean X on not Twitter. Um, I do the Instagram thing too now. Um, we are we are slaves again to our overlords, as you talked about. But um, hopefully something will come around where we can actually be Americans on these platforms again. Um, yeah, I think that that's pretty much it. So heritage.org, though, first and foremost. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. As always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find applications for our upcoming programs, whether it's Fellowship for American Statecraft, or you can fill out the interest form for our summer lunches on Capitol Hill. Uh, I said summer. There's summer, spring, and fall now, so you can come to lunch <laughs> right now, this Friday, if you would so like. Not this Friday, because this episode coming out on the Monday of Thanksgiving week, but the point is, um, chances are, if you are in Washington, D.C., almost every single week of the year, there is now an American Moment program that's highly relevant to you. Go check it out on AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast and everything else we have cooking at American Moment. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars only. Otherwise, um, Santa Claus will bring you a dead animal on Christmas. Um, there you can also subscribe on YouTube. Uh, look at our pretty mugs and the pretty mugs of our guests as we uh, have these fantastic discussions. Our YouTube subscribership has exploded recently. It's like doubled uh, this year alone. 
Um, and as always, we are very grateful for having you guys on the show. Nick, you want to interrupt me? Uh, people are going to think that they accidentally turned on the two times speed. Yeah, you're going I don't know. So I fast. feel like Chippy. I'm so glad to be back on the podcast after so many weeks. Um, I need to just, uh, 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 you know, start taping on the weekends or something. Our producers will kill us if I ask. But um, thank you guys as always for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. We appreciate the overwhelming um, well wishes that have come over these big announcements these last few weeks. Uh, we are more excited than ever to be doing our work here at American Moment. So thank you. And we'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.